Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Be looking at the last half of this passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In our passage this morning, which covers verse 23 through the first verse of chapter 11, the Apostle Paul wraps up his answers to the Corinthians' questions about food sacrifice to idols. After this week, we won't hear anything more about food except for the next chapter of in chapter 11 is the famous passage on the Lord's Supper. But he's pretty much through with dealing with this one, and we get to go on to one of the many more that we see him addressing. The issue of food sacrifice to idols was first addressed back in chapter 8, and since then Paul has made the most of his opportunity to apply one of the most important teachings of the Christian faith to this particular issue of food sacrifice to idols. And what is this teaching? It first appeared in chapter 6 in the middle of another concern where he wrote, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then in chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, where, where we'll begin this morning, Paul repeats, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. But he adds two new conclusions. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words... Not everything that you're free in Christ to do is beneficial or builds up the body of Christ. When dealing with Pharisees or legalists, Christian liberty should be defended at all costs. But our Christian liberty must be exercised in such a way that does not cause the weak brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Galatians 5, 1 and verse 13, Paul also deals with this in another way. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Just because I may be free to do or eat something does not mean that I should. The freedom in Christ part of uh, Paul's teaching was also explained earlier as he began to answer this question about food sacrificed or offered to idols back in chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. And here's what he said. Since food is neutral in the sense that it does not condemn you or commend you to God, you are free to eat it all. 
This new covenant understanding of food caused quite a stir among the Jews. In fact, it was probably the biggest issue for Jews who came to Christ, or one of the biggest. It's hard for us to imagine, but when you read the dietary laws in the Old Testament, you realize how big of a deal that one statement really is. And since there's only one true God, a man-made idol of wood, stone, or precious metal, etc., has no power in and of itself. And Paul says, it's nothing. And Paul took great care in this letter to make sure that he laid the groundwork necessary for the Corinthians to think biblically about this dicey issue of food sacrifice to idols. You know, there's not too many places in the New Testament where you spend over two and a half chapters getting ready to get to the point. That's how huge this was for these people living in this pagan city. We need to, first of all, be willing to take such care, learning the foundations of our faith and what is taught, especially this principle, as we now live in an ungodly culture, basically. In fact, just last week, in the first half of chapter 10, he dropped a bombshell into the discussion that he hadn't mentioned before. The problem with eating food offered to idols in the temple of a false god was not the idol itself, but that demons were behind those offerings to the false god in that temple. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 10 I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be, to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I hope you see the spectrum of the teaching here about our freedom in Christ and how to exercise that in a pagan society. It's been made clear, hasn't it? What is Paul taught? A Christian cannot participate in a false god's temple sacrificial meal. And now Paul can give the Corinthians instructions, hopefully they'll understand, about eating private meals. What a person should do about food when purchasing it in the marketplace, first of all, and secondly, when invited to the home of an unbeliever. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 through verse 1 of chapter 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered, to, offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I did get a little humor out of realizing, finally, I'm slow, that this whole three passages about food sacrificed to idols, we finished the week before Thanksgiving. God continues to do very creative things in us sometimes to give us a moment of, oh, well, okay, I'll remember this. As we just saw a minute ago in the first two verses of our passage this morning, verses 23 and 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, not everything that you're freeing Christ to do is beneficial or builds up the body of Christ. And because we're all members of Christ's body, we're not supposed to use our liberty in Christ as a way of justifying our self-centered behavior, especially in regards to food or drink. Food and drink should never divide the body of Christ. And yet they do. And that's wrong. So how does this principle apply to food sold in the open market where these people didn't know its origin? Well, Paul gave a pretty simple, clear answer, didn't he? And you're going, yeah, finally. We've been talking about this since chapter 8. His answer is, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So, he's made clear already that a Christian cannot eat or participate in a false god's temple sacrificial meal. Now, I just want to mention again, there were so many temples in the city of Corinth, it's hard to count. Everywhere to different particular gods. This was common practice. This was normal for people who lived in this city. This was a big deal then because of that. This is not some weird thing on the highway, you know, 
10 miles down the road that you never even see. This was all throughout their city. And it had a lot of social implications. It also affected people's work, what they did for a living, because they were all kind of connected together. So this is a huge issue. And they cannot go in the temple to share a meal. It's forbidden. Because why? Behind this idol who the meat is offered to, he says, are demons. But there is nothing wrong whatsoever in eating meat which may or may not have come from a pagan temple. I hope we see how this takes maturity, which is the whole point here. This would have been easier for the Gentile believers to digest than the Jews who had become Christians, especially because of all the Old Testament dietary laws. There's nothing wrong whatsoever in eating meat, which may or may not have come from a pagan temple if you buy it at the market and you don't know. Ask yourself, could you have handled this? If you don't know where the meat came from, in other words, don't worry about it. Eat it and enjoy it. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. One commentator writes, with a single sentence, the revolutionary nature of which we take for granted, Paul has just dismissed every religion in the world which is centered upon good works and religious rituals. Christians are not bound to superstition or the rules of men who think that they are wiser than God. After all, there is no reality to the idol since the earth and everything in it is the Lord's. Hope that's clear. We'll have to hit this again when we get to the Lord's Supper passage. How does this apply then, secondly, to meat offered to you in someone's home? where you don't know its origin? Ask yourself the question, am I that person that would be sneaking around in the kitchen trying to find the receipt, knowing that that particular butcher sells 90% meat that had been sacrificed to the idol? And then if I found out, I'd have to tell him, standing up for Christ, that I can't eat it. That's the reality of how we deal with these things. And that would be wrong. His answer is in verses 27 through 30. Notice this one comes with an extra dose of application because of what may be said. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Is that clear? That's the instruction. That's clear. And but, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his conscience. And you're going, what? Okay, he's explaining this. 
For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Okay, let's go through this. There's two scenarios here are dealt with. First, first notice that whether you, the believer, should accept the dinner invitation is entirely up to you. That's not even an issue. Did you notice that? If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, which means if you want to go or if you desire to go, you can go. I don't know. Is that an issue for anybody in here yet? The weirder, the stranger our culture gets, it might come up. Okay, here's the answer. You can go eat dinner. And if you go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, unless you're allergic, unless you will throw up if you see whatever. That's not the point. Do you see what he's getting at? Well, I'm going to leave it there. You shouldn't feel any anxiety about whether it's been offered to idols. Your conscience, your, your sense of right and wrong should not be troubled. You can eat with peace and joy knowing the food you're eating is a gift from God. But we see here... Someone has said that they know that this meat was offered to idols. And the terms here indicate probably that the one informing was an unbeliever because of the way they used the phrase. And out of concern for your values, they've told you this. Or maybe they're testing you. It's a test of your values. And that lets, that lets you know about the nature of the food you're about to eat. But if someone says to you this has been offered, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. So in this situation, you, the Christian, should not eat it. And you're going, man, this is getting complicated. But it's not really this is called growing up and maturing in your faith. Why not? For the sake of the one who informs you. So for the sake of the conscience of the unbeliever who told you about the food, you should not eat it. The informers made the food's origin known to you because they were convinced that eating that food would be wrong for a Christian. You met unbelievers like that? In other words, a non-Christian knows something about Christians and he thinks, well, surely that would be wrong for them. Why? Every other religion in the world, the way you merit favor in that God is to obey a bunch of rules and regulations. Surely Christians have rules and regulations like that. And if you do go ahead and eat the food previously offered to idols, they could mistake that eating for, you, uh, for your worship of an idol. 
In other words, they think you're worshiping an idol, just like I would be if I ate it. That's their thinking. So he says in verse 29, the last part, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? This is confusing at first, but what Paul is saying here is simply this. His liberty in Christ is not forfeited when he gives it up for the sake of another. In other words, you're not losing anything by not eating in this instance. You're showing your faith in Christ is so strong and you believe him so much that you are free not to partake of something that you're really free to eat. Does that make sense? It's what's great about being free. You can care about somebody else and not put something in the way of them hearing the gospel. In other words, he voluntarily refrains from eating in this situation, the Christian, from eating something that he is really free to eat. And so Paul says, so should you. And then, in verse 30, he asks another question that sheds some light on an important insight here. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? This tells us something. This tells us that Paul was accused of what? Eating meat, sacrifice to idols that somebody thought was absolutely wrong. But the New American Excuse me, the New International Version Study Bible has a real simple way of explaining this, short. And it suggests that Paul had been accused of eating meat offered to idols. So the idea here is that because Paul had exercised his freedom in Christ before in eating meat offered to idols, he had no right to forbid the Corinthians from doing the same. Does that make sense? In other words, we've seen Paul do this before, but he's telling the Corinthians that they can't if someone says it's been offered. In other words, they, they're not able to make the distinctions or have the discernment in order to see what he's really telling them. Hopefully the Corinthians paying attention to all the parts of this teaching would be able to discern and understand the nuances of when to eat and when not to eat. Hopefully we get that too. Because, folks, this principle will happen, will come into our laps on other issues. Probably not meat offered to idols, but there will be other stuff where you have to make these kind of decisions. And all of this is governed by a right understanding and application of our freedom and liberty in Christ. Paul asked this question, hoping that the Corinthians have been listening or hearing and, we'll, and they'll know how to answer it. And if they do know how to answer it, what would that mean? It would mean they're finally catching on to what Christian liberty is. Which means they're finally catching on to being free to serve and care for others. Which is, is that what they've known for? No, this church is so divided 
They're known for looking out for themselves first. They still don't get this. Not even with other believers in Christ, much less the pagans around them. Do you see what he's doing? They're asking a question about food offered to idols, and he's giving them the principles to live that will help their own problem in their church, which is looking out for number one and not caring about somebody else and what they're going through, so that if I do this, it'll maybe tempt them to do the same thing. These are hard questions when you start really looking at them. And this means for them, building up the body of Christ and seeking the good of your neighbor. That's what he put down in this text. We may be free to do something, but... It should be building up the body of Christ and seeking the good of your neighbor. And if you can't answer that with a yes, that would help building up the body of Christ, then what should you do? Be very careful whether you do it or not. So finally, Paul can offer a summary of chapters 8 through 10 in the next couple of verses that contain some of the most treasured words in all of Scripture. And we, usually we don't go through all this food offered to idols thing before we look at this verse. This is just one of those that sticks out anyway. But in the context of what he's been talking about, I think it hits a lot harder. And it's greater in its impact upon our hearts. So whether you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, that help. I've been practicing that one. We got to hear the tone here. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now this, of course, as we've said, first specifically applies to what he's just been covering, eating food sacrificed to idols. It, and this actually serves as a test, a test that can help us. If we do all to the glory of God, that is, if we carefully consider what exalts Christ, and advances his kingdom, then we are free to eat and drink what we wish. By saying whatever you do, then he's covering everything in life. Doing everything to the glory of God also means that the strong must be careful in the presence of the weak. And avoid doing any of those things which may cause the weak to stumble. Is this good for us? Answer that honestly. Yes. Because it humbles us. And it keeps our eyes focused on wanting to glorify God. And helping our brothers and sisters in Christ be able to grow. If we truly desire to be able to navigate 
in and through the pagan culture that we now live in, the letter to the Corinthians has already provided us with two primary and intertwined callings. Whatever we do, we must do all to the glory of God. And as we embrace that as our primary purpose and desire, we must put the needs of our neighbor ahead of our own. This calling is born out of the first. So all the discussions that we're having and all of the lessons we're learning about how to live in a culture that does not love and reverence God Almighty who created everyone and everything. Our first concern is whatever we do, we must do all to the glory of God. I have a strange feeling. I think this is going to really get clearer and clearer the worse our culture becomes. And remember, Paul's doing all this in order that more may be saved as we learn to put the needs of our neighbor ahead of our own. So then he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, which that last phrase is one of the most misapplied verses in the whole Bible. Taken out of context and used to justify anything and everything as far as watering down the gospel and you name it, it's been tried. When we live, we live for God's glory when we live in a way that promotes faith in all persons. When they can say, somebody can say, that person really cared about me and I've got this strange feeling inside that they care about me because they love a God that I don't believe in. In fact, they seem to be grounded in ways that I don't know anything about. I've seen stuff happen to these people that I can't believe it's so hard. And they're still standing because their trust is in a God who's faithful. That's how our testimony is going to be made clear in the days ahead. It already is. When Paul says he tries to please everyone, he's not suggesting that he lives to gain somebody's admiration or favor or approval, etc. Not at all. He is suggesting that he lives for the benefit of others instead of just seeking his own best interest. Paul conducted his life so that others may be saved. This is so simple. But we are so bad at it. You go through a line 20 yards long at a store the next couple of weeks. And as you sit there, you're getting more and more ticked off. Instead of looking at the person behind the cash register and watching the, the temperature go up so much that that person is about ready to explode. They're getting ragged on. They're getting blamed for this or that. They're having to deal with people who can't find their credit cards and they have to give money back and blah, 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 blah. So when you get up to them, what are you called to do? 
You realize how much one comment of respect or dignity means to somebody in that position? Yes, because some of you have worked in those jobs. And when you've got 50 people that have treated them that way and one person comes through and they say, man, I'm really sorry you're having to go through this today, so I hope mine goes better, my, my purchase goes better, and thanks a lot for giving me my receipt without you know, smashing it on the counter. It means something. It's showing respect and dignity that we can do to anybody. And so often we don't because we're the ones that are the hottest and the most righteous in our cause. And we need to really think about this. Paul conducted his life so that others might be saved. With that last thought, he can call the Corinthians to be imitators of himself as he is of Christ. Why? Because he himself is an imitator of Christ. This is not some self-righteous apostle going, you follow me. It's he says it. Be imitators of me. It's, I imitate Christ. He's giving him a legitimate someone physical that they know and they respect. An example. How have I been living? How have I been treating this meat issue? Be imitators of me. Can't you see I care about these people that are worshiping this false God? The most important thing is that. And you're free to behave and do what will bring honor and glory to him, which will mean something, hopefully, to the other person. And to the extent, then, that Paul imitates Christ, they can imitate Paul. And why? Because his salvation and our salvation has already been accomplished for us by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul, let's be honest, has really not taught anything new here. It's just another great biblical example that are throughout Scripture. The greatest thing we need has never changed down through history. And we've got to realize that as we interact with the people around us. And what is the greatest need? People need forgiveness and reconciliation with God because they don't have it without Christ. This is also the greatest truth every single human being ignores the most and run f runs from the fastest. Why? They don't want anybody having any power over themselves. They want to live their way and get the credit for their life, etc., etc., etc. We cannot be truly free in Christ until we hear, understand, and embrace the one who accomplished the work necessary to forgive and reconcile us with our Creator. And because God has done what we can't do for ourselves, we should gratefully, reverently, and can I say this, joyfully love, serve, and worship Him as we live our lives. In every area of our lives, every day of our lives, and passages all through the Bible should hit home. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. In Leviticus 19, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, I've heard those before. This is where it comes from. 
And Jesus in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Sounds easy. Waking up. Thanks, God, for this day. Instead of, oh, good grief. Getting ready for the day. Is God going to be faithful to you today or not? Does it have to go like you planned? Marty's favorite phrase is another day where everything I planned went different. She can say that because she trusts in God's working out her days better than anybody I know. It's very convicting to this person. Going to work, taking care of responsibilities at home, studying, researching, cleaning, fixing, errands, planning, interacting with coworkers, children, salespeople, etc., on the phone, emails, reporting, computing, resting, exercising, eating, entertaining, meeting with believers, praying, fellowship, teaching, worshiping, singing, encouraging, spurring one another on, sharing, helping, etc., etc., etc. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. You should not honk. If anybody honks today at the corner of Bells and Hillside with three churches getting out in different directions and you get ticked off at other Christians probably who are doing so, you better not. And if you do, you better pray quick. Oh God, there I go again in my car. Everything in life we can give glory to God in and we need to help each other learn how to do it. The bottom line Others are watching. I will not tell you the joke about the Christian who was honking at the person so much in front of her that the guy behind her watched her almost bump the car in front and then had to remind her of the bumper sticker that she had on her car. That'll be the last place he goes to worship. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for our freedom in Christ to be able to enjoy your blessings and look at life in a completely different manner. It's exciting. It is freeing. It's also very, very humbling. Because, Lord, you've shown us what the most important need that we have is and you've met that need in sending Christ for us and we weren't running after you. You ran after each and every one of us and brought us to yourself. No merit of ours. And Lord, we pray that you would help us see every person that we interact with as somebody you created who has that same need and that we could live in such a a manner and with the disposition of bringing honor and glory to you first and foremost and being able to serve and help and love those who don't know you with respect and dignity no matter how we're treated. Lord, we pray that we could grow in that individually and as a body of Christ. 
so that this place, the people in it, could be known for those people who, and what's filled in that blank is people that other people know are humble before their creator and have a desire to share that truth with those around them. Lord, thank you so much for making this such a big deal in this particular letter that it makes us face it as well in other situations and other circumstances. We pray that we could give thanks to you in the coming week in ways that maybe we haven't thought of before. It wouldn't just be a saying, but even in the midst of trial or heartache or loss, that we could still see your faithfulness to us that the life Christ lived was one that involves so much ridicule and suffering. We say we follow him. That may mean experiencing similar. Lord, we lift up this time to you. We pray that we would honor and glorify you in the rest of our day and this week, that you'd show us how to, to love our families and our friends that we gather with, that we truly would be grateful for the bounty that we enjoy. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with y'all. Amen. You're dismissed.